So when we last left off, by the way, today's message is called Stand and Surrender. Um, and we're going to be talking about the character of the apostles today. And we're going to, to, to look to them uh, and their character and what we see in them uh, for a guide to us. I mean, so far in, in what we've learned, Jesus is hanging out with his disciples. And uh, they haven't been incredibly impressive up to this point, right? Um, their priorities are off, you know. Uh, they're, they're thinking uh, about already, Christ hasn't even left yet, and they're already thinking about his return, right? They're already looking for a kingdom. Uh, they're already looking for heaven. Uh, they're already looking to escape the plan that God has for them. And, uh, and so, you know, they're showing their weakness, they're showing their weakness, and they're showing us their lack of priority, and they're showing us how little they've really learned so far from Jesus in the time that they've spent with Him. And they're struggling. You know, He's been preparing them. He's been preparing them, explaining to them His Holy Spirit, that it would be coming, that it would be empowering them. He explained to them His new program, that the focus would be on the kingdom of God and God indwelling man. And He explained to them the Great Commission and how He wanted to use them and to reach the world with the gospel. These are the things that he'd been teaching them. Now, there was certainly a lot that they understood in three and a half years plus 40 days. There's lots of things that they understood. And there's probably things that they understood at this time that we still don't fully understand today. That time that they got to spend with Jesus had to have been so amazing. But there was certainly a lot of things that they didn't understand. There was a lot of things that they just didn't get. And those things that they didn't understand, they weren't going to figure them out by sitting at Jesus' feet any longer. Those things, they were going to figure them out by going and doing and being all the things that he had taught them so far. And this is true for us too. There is a lot of teaching that we've received at Midtown Baptist Temple. There's There's a lot that we've gained in terms of knowledge. And if you've been here for a short period of time, I mean, a lot of times it is like drinking from a water, uh, a fire hose, right? Um, it's just you receive so much and there's so much teaching. But the truth is the lion's share of what we learn will come from applying the little that we know. The greatest amount of growing that you're going to do is going to happen as you in faith take the little that you know and apply it with everything you got. That That is where the true learning takes place and Jesus knows this. A lot of what God shows us has to be figured out as we live a life of faith. Now with that in mind, Jesus is getting ready to leave. And he begins his ascent back to heaven. And they're not going to see him again uh, this side of eternity. They're not going to get to see Jesus again this side of eternity. In fact, we're still awaiting his return. We're still looking for the opportunity to have what the disciples had in knowing Him face to face. I want that. I want that the same way the disciples wanted that. I want that. But as He, as he leaves, they stand dumbfounded. And we catch them again exposed. Not knowing, not knowing what the next step is. So let's look, at, let's look at what happens and then let's break it down. Can we do that? Okay, we're in verse 9. And when he had thus spoken these things, and, and, and we've got to remember that the last thing that Jesus is talking about here is the Great Commission. He's telling them, look, you're going to go into the world and you're going to preach in every place. 
You're going to preach the gospel. You're going to, you're going to preach the message of the re remission and the repentance of sin and the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what you're going to do. Okay? So he, he taught those things, and while they beheld, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight, and while they, they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up. So let's pause there for a second. They're standing there. You can imagine, picture this in your mind, they're standing together with Jesus, and he just starts to, I don't know, this is how I imagine it, hover in the air. Right? And he begins to ascend, and uh, the clouds swallow him up. And I can only imagine that this is just as uh, strange and mystical as you imagine it to be. And, and, and perhaps this is the most awesome thing they've ever seen. And of course, watching someone hover and fly into the sky, I mean, they've watched Jesus walk through walls. You know, they watched, they saw his resurrected body. They've seen him perform miracles of all sorts. But to watch the one that they walked with for so long just, just, to, just disappear with very little explanation for what was to come for them, in detail anyway, had to have left them completely shocked. Had to have left them feeling empty. See, they're so focused on Jesus that they're, they, they, they tend towards neglecting the words that he's saying. They're so focused on his personage that they're struggling to, to understand what he has for them in terms of their lives and his dwelling with them in spirit. See, his leaving to them is loss. But to Christ, his leaving is not loss. It's something gained. It's something gained because he knows that upon his leaving that he gets to send his spirit in his stead and that so much will get done in the name of Jesus Christ through the empowerment of his spirit that Jesus Christ has been anticipating this for millennia. He himself is excited by this, but for them, they, they perceive it and they, they see it as lost. So they, they stand gazing up into heaven, loitering about in awe and in sadness even. And, and, I, and I can't really blame them. He was their everything. I mean, if you think about it this way, a lot of these men, they had other occupations, right? They were tax collectors. They were, they were fishermen. Uh, they did all these things. And when Jesus asked them to follow him, they, they, they lost themselves in his identity. Right? They gave up those other things. Gladly gave up those other things. And they began to identify so closely with the man Jesus Christ that him leaving and giving them no timetable for his return, it had to have hurt. It had to have hurt. And it's all they knew was to follow him and to do as he said. So, th so to them, all of this was a very strange proposition. And they stood in bewilderment. And then two angels arrive, all right? So, behold, two men, verse 10, behold, two men stood by in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which was taken up from, from you into heaven, 
shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. All right, so what, what is the challenge here? What is it that's going on? Two angels are rebuking them. Don't just stand there, get to work. See, their preoccupation, listen very closely, their preoccupations had become their procrastination. You know, um, in my house, it's super common for me to boss my children around. I mean, they're six and four. And if I don't have the privilege of doing that, what good is being a dad? Um, no, uh, as you can imagine, uh, I occasionally have requests. Things like, hey, you need to pick up the books that are, the, the 100 books that you just strewn about the entire room, you need to go pick those up and put them away, right? Things like that. Now, it's not uncommon for them to say, usually it starts with the word but, okay, and then they begin, they proceed to say things that generally don't make a lot of sense. Um, but they want to, they want to conversate. They get real chatty all of a sudden. And they think, I think they think that I'm dumb, right? Um, but they, they ask all these questions. They start asking questions, all, like all kinds of, of things, uh, some of which don't apply at all. But like suddenly they become philosophers. And they want to like ask questions about life. <sighs> Father, what do you think about... Um, Explain to me, and, and so then they go, and they go on. And uh, so I always give them the same response when they start asking these millions of questions, right? I always give them the same response. We can talk after you've obeyed me. I, I'll address all your inquiries once you've done exactly what I say. See, I'm more interested in their obedience than their questions. You know, some of those questions are vain, but to be honest with you, some of them are relevant. You know, pick up your books. Maybe they have a question about how to pick up the books. Maybe they have a question, a question about how to organize them. Would you like them color, color co- uh, coordinated or whatever? And, and, and so some of their questions are, are, to them, maybe perhaps relevant. But to me, they're irrelevant. Do as I ask. We'll figure it out as you go. We'll figure it out as you go. See, a million thoughts are rolling through the disciples' heads. A million questions are rolling in their mind, and, and yet the message was loud and clear. There is no time to mill over your emotions or your thoughts right now. You have been given a command. You've been given a command. The angels reassure the disciples of Christ's return. Look, he's coming back. Don't worry about that. Okay, don't worry about that. He just got done telling you about that, by the way. He just told you it's not, a, it's not your job to be concerned with when he returns. And they say, go and I, this is very important. This, this is the message that the angels give them. Go discover the work. Go discover the work. Go discover and live what he commanded you to do. And all of those questions will either dissipate, right? Or they'll get answered along the way. Man, how many of us can relate to that? How many of us are preoccupied? How many of us are meandering? Key point number one. The mission of God does not forbear meandering. It doesn't put up with it. The mission of God does not put up with dilly-dallying. 
Okay, that's the word I like to use a lot, which again makes me sound like an 80-year-old man, but I use it a lot. Don't dilly-dally, okay? The mission of God doesn't put up with that. See, what the mission of God does is it mobilizes. It mobilizes. It activates. It pushes us. It provokes us. It prods us. It moves us. And the disciples discover that here. You know, many of us are loitering in the kingdom of God. Many of us are loitering in the kingdom of God, fully indwelled by His Spirit, fully commissioned, but nominally engaged. And we've got all kinds of reasons and questions and justifications and anxieties to explain away why we are not pursuing the Lord and His mission. And I want to call you out today. I want to call you out. I want you to truly consider your priorities again. What does the mission look like in your life? What does it look like? And if you know, then stop meandering. There is way too much to get done. There's just way too much to get done. And I'm not advocating for you extending yourself in work beyond your capacity. That's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to make priorities, to to emphasize the things that God emphasizes, put those at the top of your list, and begin living and dwelling in that. No one's bossing you around or telling you what to do. We're simply asking. The Word of God is simply asking. The Holy Spirit is simply asking. These two angels are simply asking that we as disciples of Jesus Christ go and engage. And we need to be about that. And so, so what we find is the, the disciples obey. They obey. Okay, so let's look at verse 12. They returned, uh, then they returned unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath, Sabbath day journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room, which we presume is the same upper room uh, that they met in before, okay, during the Lord's Supper. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room, where they abode both, uh, where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, uh, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Z- uh, Zelotes, Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. Okay, so what we have here is what I'm referring to as the cast of the obedient. These are, the, these are the obedient ones that are left. And um, these are the ones that, that, that were with Jesus for the 40 days learning. And what we have here is we have the 11 remaining disciples present and prepared. We have another 120, which we'll learn in verse 15, another 120 present and ready and waiting and gathered, just as Jesus asked them to do in our previous study. Those who loved Christ chose to obey Him. Those who loved Christ, they chose to obey Him. John 14, 15, Jesus tells His disciples, If ye love Me, keep My commandments. And so they took Him seriously, and they go and they wait. 
Now listen, this is, this is where we're going to get the majority of our message today. So let's start here in verse 15. And we're going to talk about the rising leadership in the, in the ranks of the obedient. Verse 15 says, And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, The number of names together were about 120. This is what I want you to focus on. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Peter stood up in the midst. Peter chose to stand and separate himself. Jesus, or, uh, Peter chose to, to in, in, in the name of Jesus Christ, stand in a position of leadership where need arose. He chose to do that. See, here we, we see Peter shed the shame of his past. I don't know if you're very familiar with Peter's life, but his time with Jesus was, was very, oh, spotty at best. And, and the last time we really saw Peter is he was denying Jesus Christ. And between that time and this moment, when we, whenever we see Peter, we actually see Peter taking a back, backseat role, which he's not used to. Peter's used to, he's used to standing up. Overzealous, many would say. A lot of times we see Peter standing up and putting his foot in his mouth, right? But after, after the denial of Christ, we see Peter take a backseat. And we see Peter much more quiet. And we see, we can see him carrying his shame. But here we see Peter shed that shame. Here we see a man choosing to move forward in power rather than dwell on his denial and his past weaknesses. That's what we see here. So here's our key point. Every great leader, and by great I mean surrendered leader, you could just replace that word great with surrendered. Every great leader is a surrendered leader. Every great leader chooses to stand, even if their testimony has fallen. Every great leader chooses to stand, even when their testimony seems to contradict or violate them standing. See, when you understand the kingdom of God, when you understand the gospel the way Peter does now, right? These are things that he didn't understand before. But listen, listen. When you understand the kingdom of God, when you understand the gospel, when you have tasted of forgiveness, when you have received the greater purpose, all shame withers away. All shame withers away and you lose yourself and you stand in surrender. You lose yourself. In this moment, Peter had finally just given up and lost his identity. And we never see the same Peter again. We never see the same Peter. He's different. He's different. I mean, sometimes when you're reading First and Second Peter, it doesn't even sound like Peter. I mean, he's literally contradicting the man that he was before. See, people with true purpose don't have time to wallow in their failures. It's impossible to be self-loathing or self-boasting, selfish or self-doubting 
When you stand and surrender, it's impossible. See, this is what the Great Commission does for our lives. This is what it does. It inflames passion, and it causes leaders to rise and respond, to stand and speak. That's what it does. That's what it does. See, this is the way I, I understand leadership. Because not everyone is a leader. Uh, I mean, there's lots of people who are fledgling leaders. But you know when I can tell a leader is when I see them taking the Great Commission as serious as it actually is. When they lose themselves in pursuit of souls, I've seen a leader. And they might not have any responsibility. They might not oversee some sort of ministry task or thing. But when I see a person lose themselves in the Great Commission, stand and respond, then I've found a, a capable leader in ministry. And this is what Peter does. He stands in the midst. And see, here's the deal. He sees a void and he responds. He speaks up. Let's look at it for a second. See, Peter sees a need and he, he initiates a biblical agenda. There's something very specific that he's doing here. You know, sometimes someone will think that they're leading and they'll stand up and they'll speak out of turn. They'll speak out of turn. That's actually what Peter's used to doing, right? And, and sometimes I'll see leaders do that out of zeal. And there's, you know what, that's, I'm, I'm very, very forgiving of that, and, and we, as we should be. But there's a very specific thing that he's doing here. He is responding, not with his own opinion, but with a biblical agenda in mind. He's speaking up on behalf of the Word of God. Right here, what he's doing is he uses Scripture to make a biblical argument for why they should replace Judas among the twelve apostles. It's very business-minded, isn't it? Right? I mean, we've just gotten all this like inspirational teaching from Jesus, and they're like full of faith, and, and, the, and the angels, and they go, and they're going to the upper room to wait for the, the, the Holy Spirit to come down, and we would think that would be the next thing that happens here. But no, Peter stands up, and he's like, all right, gentlemen, we need to take care of this issue of the 12th apostle. This is what he says, men and brethren, this scripture must needs have, have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas. In other words, what he's saying is, the Bible talks about this. It's amazing that he already understands that. The Bible talked about this was going to happen. This was going to happen. Psalms 41.9 says, Yea, mine own familiar friend, this is a prophecy of Judas, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Peter's pointing to that passage. Psalm 55.12, For it was not an enemy that reproached me, then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me, that did, that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man, mine equal, my guide and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked unto the house of God in company. Let death seize upon him and let, him, uh, let them go down quick into hell. For wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. I mean, Judas, I mean Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. Jesus knew. 
The disciples were unaware. But now that everything has gone down, the disciples are like, wow, that happened. Our friend betrayed the Savior. Our friend, the one that we counted a friend, betrayed our Savior. Verse 16, Peter continues on. He says, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled with which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was a guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and hath obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased the field with the reward of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst and all his bowels gushed out. That's a great picture. Thanks, Peter. We didn't need to know that, bro, but cool. Um, And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem insomuch as the field is called in their proper tongue uh, Al-Kadama, that is to say, the field of blood. So he tells the story of Judas here. All right? And what he's doing is he's denouncing their brother. This dude is wicked and evil, and we didn't know it, and now he's cast out. All right? He's headed straight to hell, and now we need to do something to replace the betrayer because there ought to be 12. There ought to be 12 among us. We've got to replace Judas. Look at verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, right? He's continuing to use Scripture to justify his position. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate and let no man dwell therein and his bishopric let another take. Let another take. Now, bishopric is a really weird word. All right? But it means the office of a bishop an overseer or a pastor. And the 12 disciples were the original overseers. They were the original pastors, okay? They were disciples, right? But they had the office of apostle and the office of pastor. These are our first pastors, our first overseers. And Peter is making a scriptural argument that when Judas betrayed Christ, he forfeited his office. And he's presenting the scriptural justification for replacing Judas among the twelve disciples. Very interesting, isn't it? But here's the, the thing that we need to understand. See, when, when Peter is Peter here is not only taking the initiative, he's not just standing up, but he's also using scripture as his guide. And in terms of a leadership principle, what what better thing to understand? That we don't, get to, we don't get to just have our own opinions. We don't, we don't get to just stand and speak on behalf of Jesus. Jesus speaks for himself. The word of God sets our agenda. The word of God is what calls us to focus. We don't need Peter as much as we need the word of God. What we need is we need Peter to speak the word of God. And and he uses Psalms 109.8 is what he's he's quoting here. But here's our key point. Key point. Every great or surrendered leader is, is determined to make God's words their words. You understand? A a great leader is gonna say, I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to say except for what God's word provokes me to say. Listen, we've got too many leaders in this world who call themselves Christians 
who call themselves pastors, who are speaking not the words of God, but the words of their own opinion. And it's, sh- it's shameful. It's shameful. We had a conversation just last night. I was, I was getting dinner. I was sitting down. with It was me and Brian and John Kindler were, were talking. Van was there too. And we were talking. We were having a conversation. Um, and we were talking about how many worship leaders that we listen to, worship bands, uh, men and women who sing about God um, in our culture have become pastoral in the way that they lead. They've got their podcasts. They've got their platforms. They've got, they've got all these things. And, and, and I don't know if you've noticed this. One of the things we talked about is almost every worship album that comes out now on Spotify, they have a version of that worship album where they leave a commentary with their song. I don't know if you've noticed this. And one of the things that we discovered is those commentaries are trash. They're trash. Mainly because what we discover is that very little of what they have to say is actually God's word. No, you're the man. I was just, yeah. yeah. I love you too, man. Sam Miles' son, everyone. <laughs> um, see, here's the problem is that everybody wants to be heard, but no one wants to talk about the Bible. And every Christian leader that has a voice, they use it. I mean, you can hardly blame them. They have an audience. But the problem is so few of them are actually saying the things that God is saying. And some of us in this room, man, uh, that's true of our own lives. The agenda that we set is based on personal opinion and desire rather than what God's word says. But not for Peter, not for the disciples. See, the agenda that they set is based on God's word. Verse 21, Wherefore of these men which have, uh, which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went uh, went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto the day that, uh, that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. Okay, so what's happening here? Peter's saying that we've got to choose from among this pool the person that's going to replace Judas. But he puts some qualifiers on it. And these qualifiers are super important for us to understand because, again, very few people today are reading their Bible. And, and, and or they're reading it in such a way that is uh, selective. It's very selective. So let's look real quick at the, the qualifications of an apostle. And I want you to think about the fact that in today's world, particularly in the Pentecostal movement, it's very common for them to promote apostleship among their congregants. And they believe that the apostle position, the authority, the office still exists today. All right, and I'm going to make a short and brief argument for why that's not true, but it begins here. It begins here by Peter spelling out what is necessary to be an apostle. Okay, what are the things that he says? They have to first, they had to be present for the extent of Christ's ministry. 
They had to be present for the extent of Christ's ministry, which means, first of all, his baptism. He says it right there, beginning from the baptism of John. Beginning from the baptism of John, unto the same day that he was taken up from among, among us. In other words, his baptism and his death. He was taken up from among us. Must be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. Third, that person had to be there present for those 40 days after the resurrected Christ. Does that make sense to everyone? So there's a, there's a pool from which they're, they're pulling from. And actually, the, the selection process it came down to just two other men. It came down to two men. Now, here's the deal. Paul was the 13th apostle added later. Now, that happens. We recognize that happens in Acts 9. And we, we're not going to get into all the reasons because, remember, we're in the book of Acts, so we're going to come upon this later on. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. But Acts chapter 9 comes after Acts chapter 7. And Acts chapter 7, what we see in Acts is that the Jews have refused, Jews have, in no indefinite terms, refused Jesus Christ. And, and so what happens is God activates a Gentile apostle an apostle to the Gentiles. He chooses to add another apostle by his own choosing and ordination. And he gets the right to do that. We'll, get, we'll give Jesus that right. Is everybody okay with that? Um, but, but he was given that position of apostleship by special authority, and yet his apostleship was confirmed among the apostles. In other words, they recognized him as an apostle as well. You can see that in <coughs> Acts chapter 13. Okay? Now, Apostleship, as we see among all of the apostles, was confirmed by the working of miracles. So what they did was they worked, well, they worked miracles. That's what they did. An apostle had that gifting. They did special things. They did things that we don't see people doing today. You know? I mean, anybody that calls himself an apostle today, first of all, they don't meet these prerequisites, do they? Because they'd have to be 2,000 years old. But also, I don't catch anyone calling themselves apostle on YouTube drinking poison. No one wants to do that. Right? I don't see them doing that. The apostles, they worked miracles, and that's how they confirmed their apostleship. Now, what we see in the Bible, sometimes we see people called apostles, okay? And they're not referring to the office of apostleship, because the word apostle, just like, just like we're all missionaries, right? But we're not all ordained missionaries, are we? We're all disciples of Jesus Christ, yeah? We, we follow Jesus Christ, we're disciples of Jesus Christ, but we're not of the 12 disciples, are we? No, we're not. And so sometimes we see in Scripture that they use the term apostle to refer to someone who's sent, because the word apostle just means sent. It means sent. And so some people are sent, but there's an office of apostleship, and that's what's being talked about here. Now, one thing more to note, and then we'll leave this alone. One thing to note is that there is nothing in Scripture that tells us that the office of apostleship is successive. Nothing. And here's something to, to point out. In Acts chapter 12, this is real academic, isn't it, Eric? And then you get back into the inspirational part. In Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, one of the apostles, James, dies. And they don't replace him. 
Isn't that interesting? They don't replace him. Because the, the, the office of apostleship is not successive. It doesn't continue on. There are 12 apostles, 13 counting Paul. That's it. And if you want to be real biblical and fancy, you can call yourself an apostle as long as you're referring to the fact that Jesus has sent you into the world as a missionary. But you're not an apostle. And if I hear you saying that, we've got to sit down. Okay? But here's the, point, here's the key point, and this is the thing that I need you to know, is you don't have to have the gifts or office of an apostle in order to live like one. You don't have to have the gifts or the office of an apostle in order to live like an apostle. So what are the characteristics among the apostles? These are some of the most countercultural people in the whole of historical record. These dudes are extreme. They're completely different than anything else we see in all of history. Now, not countercultural in the way that many theologians like to talk about countercultural things. I mean, it seems to me that a lot of these theological books that are commentaries on the apostles and or Jesus, they like to draw these parallels between, they like to make them, their counterculturalism, socio-political. Like, Jesus was a communist. Did you know that? Get out. You know what I mean? It's like, this is what they want to talk about. That's not what we're talking about. These men had a spiritual message of repentance and the remission of sin, and in order to live and to preach that message, it required an antithetical reality. In other words, whatever they saw in their reality, in their world, they were basically doing the exact opposite. They were basically doing the exact opposite. Let's look at a few things that characterize them so we can understand this better. First of all, we're going to look at five characteristics. There's a lot that we could look at. We're just going to look at five because we got like five minutes. Okay? But the first thing that you need to understand is that they were men of prayer. They were men of prayer. We find the words prayer or praying 32 times in Acts. I mean, we're talking about a, a fairly short story with lots of different characters and lots of things happening. But we find 19 accounts of prayer in Acts. 19 accounts of prayer in Acts. They're just constantly praying. What was it they, that they understood? What was it that they got that we don't get? You know, my favorite thing, but it always, even today, 35 years old and in the ministry for almost 20 years, it always takes me off guard when, we're, when I'm having a conversation where people are talking about a burden and then someone says, well, let's pray about that right now. Why is that? Why does that surprise me? Doesn't that sometimes surprise you, takes you off guard, like, oh, we're going to do this. Oh, yeah, this is real. Shameful of us. It's shameful that we don't pray, pray at every occasion. Anytime you get together, we should be praying. It doesn't matter if it's a party. It doesn't matter if you're celebrating Van's birthday. Right? That's what we were doing last night, eating KC Joe's, which is really good, by the way. People should be praying. People should be praying. That's what we should be doing. That's what we need to learn from the apostles. A lifestyle of prayer is completely countercultural to our Christian perspective. See, listen, 
Most of Christianity acknowledges the privilege of prayer, but refuses to live in the necessity of prayer. They recognize the privilege of prayer. Isn't it great that God gives us this opportunity to enter into his throne room? I'm going to do that once a week. And they refuse to live in the necessity of prayer. Broken individuals before a God that can do anything. See, we are so inconvenienced by the work of prayer that that we hardly even talk about it. I mean, how many of us actually spend time on our knees alone? I mean, some of us, our, our prayer time, we call it Tuesday night. Here's the question for you. Are you absolutely 100% devoted to the constant work of prayer? If you want to live like an apostle, if you want to live the way the apostles did, I mean, are they not our template? Christian, I'm asking you, are the apostles and the way that they lived and those early disciples, are they not our template for how we should live today? Then you need to ask yourself the question, are you devoted to prayer the way they were? The next characteristic is selflessness. They were selfless. Of course, there was, a, there was a physical selflessness. The apostles were responsible for creating a culture of sacrifice of possessions. We get to read about that in Acts chapter 2, verse 45. They created a culture where everybody wanted to give their possessions away so they could be divided among the other people who had need. Isn't that amazing? But that's, that's not even, that isn't even the tip of the iceberg, okay? When we talk about selflessness, we're not talking about that. Again, that's a socio-perspective, right? More importantly was the selfless act of constantly risking their lives for the gospel. That is what we're talking about. You know, history teaches us that every single apostle besides John dies a martyr's death. Every single one of them. All of them die for the name of Jesus. John was in exile, and he died in exile. That ain't a great life. To get to that point, they probably had to give some things up along the way before they gave up their lives, didn't they? But this was their reality. And listen, that is completely countercultural to our Christian perspective. See, most of Christianity is focusing on personal comfort, not risk. Most churches are dedicated to adapting the Christian experience to our own personal desires rather than adapting our personal experience to the desires of Christ. That's what most of Christianity is. Having it your way. Well, I'm I'm sorry to announce that's not the way it's going to be here. And so here's the question for us. Are you selfless enough to risk everything for the gospel? Everything from beginning to end. Are you selfless enough to risk everything for the gospel? Third, they were focused. They were focused. See, the, the message was always the gospel. They weren't personal perspectives. They just kept pointing to Christ over and over and over and over again. The gospel is preached, listen to me, 19 times in Acts. Can anybody make a correlation? You guys catch that? 
19 times of prayer, 19 times the gospel's preached in Acts. You know, for a 28-chapter story about a handful of men and women, that's a lot of preaching. See, they knew what their objective was, and they executed it without any distraction. Without any distraction. See, their focus is completely countercultural to our contemporary Christianity. Completely so. See, most of Christianity is focused on distracting ourselves from discomfort rather than entering into it. That's what they were doing. And so it leaves us with the question, are you focused on preaching the gospel? And a lot of us, preaching the gospel is an uncomfortable thing to do. It's a very uncomfortable thing to do. And we are not willing to do it. And all of us have our reasons. And I don't have time to dive into that. You need to ask yourself, what's keeping you from preaching God's word? If you want to be like the apostles, then you need to preach. You need to be focused on that. Fourth, authority. See, these are men under authority. They're submitted to authorities in their lives until those authorities come in conflict with the gospel. This is where there's a, there's a divergence taking place in their lives. You see them completely obedient to the authorities, the officials in their lives. They do as they're asked, they do as they're told, until it comes in conflict with the gospel. These are men who knew who they were. They know that they have been sent by the authority of Jesus Christ himself, and everything else becomes secondary in light of that. See, listen to this interaction between the high priests and, and some of the, the, the disciples that were caught, okay, preaching, a second time after they got their hand slapped, all right? Acts 5, 28, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intended to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree, him hath God exalted with his right hand, hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost who God hath given to them that obeyed him. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. See, their understanding of authority is completely countercultural to our contemporary Christian focus. See, most of Christianity is compliant with worldly authorities. Compliant. Now, I'm not advocating revolution, right? Listen to me. Listen carefully to what I'm saying here. See, most of Christianity is compliant with worldly authorities, particularly as it concerns the gospel. Not because they desire to submit or live lives peaceably, but listen to me. They're compliant because it justifies their personal fears and excuses them from the obligation to preach. You know, I get asked a lot of times about my job, and this is not me tooting my own horn. I'm just, this is, I have come to the end of myself, and, and, and the Great Commission is my everything. Not every day, okay? But I'm just saying, as, as who I am and who I want to define myself as, I believe the gospel, and I want to live the Great Commission. Now listen, and my job... I have teachers who are Christians all the time asking me if I'm worried about uh, preaching the gospel at school. Aren't you worried that you're going to get in trouble? And it hurts my feelings that they ask that. Like, I get sad. Because my thought is the exact opposite of theirs. What's keeping you from preaching the gospel? I always tell them the same thing. 
I ought to obey God rather than men. I ought to obey God rather than men. I'm not trying to buck my authorities. I'm trying to obey God. See, I'm, I'm completely comfortable losing my job. God will provide. What do I care? He always takes care of me. Here's your question. Who is your authority? And with what authority do you speak with? Who is your real authority? And what, with what authority do you speak with? Okay, the last thing. I know we're going long. But I went short the last two weeks, and so you've got to give me grace here. Boldness is the last characteristic. Boldness. These are men who know their reality, and they, they are empowered by Christ's Spirit. They know it. They're living it. They are unafraid of death, and they are unwavered by the, by the position of authorities around them. They preach to rulers. They preach to, they, they, listen, they preach to the Sanhedrin three times in Acts. They, they preach to the religious authority three times. They preach among elders in the temple. They preach among Greek philosophers. They preach among Jewish leaders in Rome, among governors. They preach to a king. We can read all about this. We're going to read all about it in Acts. They don't care. I mean, th these men, this is the true definition of savage. These men do not care. And let me point this out to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and this is how we're going to close. I want you to follow along with me. This is super important. This is how we ought to think. Are you with me? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the whole entire chapter, is Paul telling us what it means to be like an apostle. Are you ready? Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. They do everything as though God is constantly watching them. But if our gospel be hid... It's hid to them that are lost. In other words, we're not hiding anything. If our gospel is hid, it's hid to the hearts of those who refuse Jesus Christ. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which, which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Comprehend that for a second. Meditate on that. For, for we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. We have the same spirit of faith according as it is written. I believe and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak 
knowing that he, uh, he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you for all things are for your sakes that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God for which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. See, they were completely countercultural to our contemporary Christian focus. Most of Christianity is timid. Most Christians are timid in their gospel witness. They de-emphasize sin because they're afraid they might offend. Some Christians are inarticulate and afraid. But listen to me. Most Christians are completely silent. They choose silence. See, the only reason a Christian would ever be quiet concerning the gospel is because they've either forgotten its value or, they, or the value of a human soul. That's it. The only reason a Christian would ever stop preaching the gospel everywhere they go is because they've either forgotten the value of the gospel itself or they do not value the human soul. Both equally as wicked. And here's the question for you. Is the message of repentance, love, and forgiveness worth sharing or not? Is it worth sharing or not? For these men it was. And so in verse 23 through 26, they appoint Matthias uh, to be that 12th apostle. And he takes on that responsibility. And, and that's how we end this chapter. But in conclusion, after looking at the apostles' testimony today, Peter and the other apostles, you know, they were failures on many accounts. But Christ had counted them worthy to lead. It would have been very easy for them to continue to question and ponder and doubt. But note, when Christ presented them with the Great Commission, and the angels gave them permission to get to work, they become new men. They do not look the same after this chapter. It's done for them. These are committed men, they are surrendered. They're done. And they live lives that look like, so kill me. So fire me. So, so, so change my path in life. Do it. I'm a dead man walking. Do you live that way? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do not have the power to live the way that you ask us to. We don't know how to do it. Our flesh is constantly demanding fleshly things. We would rather pursue our own desires, our own passions, and forget the discomfort of preaching the gospel. We're soft. We're malnutritioned. We don't stand on the principles and the authority of your word, and so we have nothing to say except for our own opinions, our own perspectives. Forgive us. Lord, deliver us from our own wickedness, And make us to live the way the apostles did. We need you to do this in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.